Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. This is my text for the message that God has put on my heart for this weekend. The scripture says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Today we continue in our series, Mental Health Goals, and I want to talk to you from the subject, pre-frame your future. Pre-frame your future. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister to every single heart in this place, every single heart, at any of our locations, anywhere that somebody's watching from. Father, would you speak to them, touch their heart, minister to their soul in a powerful way, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Well, last time you might recall that we talked about post-imagining as, uh, post-imagining our past, that is, as a mighty weapon that God has given us to win the battle for our mind. And basically that is looking back over our lives through the lens of providence. We talked about the importance of owning our past and, and that if you don't own your past, your past will own you. And so we talked about the fact that there is an author within each and every one of us. His name is the Holy Spirit. And we have to embrace the author within and rescript our past from the point of view of providence. And, and we said that, um, da Vinci is the one, Leonardo da Vinci, who coined the term to post-imagine, to go back, to look through the lens of providence about where God has brought you from. And we said that this is powerfully important to go back and to to reimagine or reconstruct our past and and look at our past, not from a place of pain, but from a place of power. And we talked about how he drew the distinction between post-imagining, imagining after something happens, and pre-imagining, which is imagining before something happens. He said that when it comes to imagination, most of us only look at imagination future tense. And so we had to start with getting control of our past or reframing our past so that it doesn't become a permanent lens that scars us from being able to see our present or our future from the perspective that God wants us to have. And if we don't gain control of our past by post-imagining it from the perspective or the lens of heaven, what happens is that it becomes a cognitive bias in our life. And a cognitive bias is basically a destructive lens that shades or colors everything that we see about our present and our future. So we have to start by learning how to gain control of our past. But now today what I want to do is go forward. I want us to now go from post-imagining to pre-imagining or looking into our future with that same lens of God's providence and God's goodness. And so through post-imagining, we reframe our past, but through pre-imagining, we pre-frame our future. And this is not psychological mumbo-jumbo, right? Because sometimes if you hear like some of these big words, and I don't know if they're big words for you, but for some people I guess they are, and cognitive bias and all of that kind of stuff, you can think, oh, that's just psychological mumbo-jumbo. No, it's actually biblical 
principle. And we find this biblical principle of post-imagining or pre-framing your future right here in what we call the Hall of Faith. And the Hall of Faith is that chapter in the Bible, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that talks about the exploits of all of the heroes of our faith, all of the great things that they accomplished for the Lord. And I want to walk through the first four verses very, very specifically. Verse number one again says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now without doing a massive amount of teaching on what faith is. If you read this particular verse in many other translations, you begin to get a sense of what faith is. And it basically is an absolute assurance or a confident expectation that what God has said or promised will come to pass in your life. It's not a might happen. It's not a maybe will happen. It is an absolute assurance that it is going to come to pass. And that kind of absolute assurance is tied to our understanding or our relationship of who our father is. When we have confidence and trust in our father, when he says something, we fully expect for that to come to pass, right? And if we don't fully expect it to come to pass, it's because we don't know our father very, very well. It's sort of like a husband and a wife. If your wife or your husband says, I'll be there at such and such a time, or I'm going to do this, you don't think twice about it. You have confidence that they're going to get it done because you know them and you know them intimately. And so God wants us to know him intimately. And when we know him intimately, we have a confident assurance that what he promises or what he says will come to pass in our life, no matter what the obstacles are or what the evidence is that is contrary to that. Faith is an absolute assurance that what God said will come to pass. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse number two says, for by it, by what? By faith, the elders obtained a testimony, all right? They used their faith in God, their absolute assurance that what God said would come to pass and, and to, to, to see their tests become testimonies. In other words, they literally stood by or held on to the word of God, no matter what obstacles came their way, and they didn't allow their circumstances to change the word of God, but they allowed the word of God to change their circumstances. How many of you know that's a good word right there? Too many people allow their circumstances to change and alter the word of God. That's the generation that we live in right now. We live in a generation that basically says, well, if this is happening, then God's word can't mean that. No, God's word is supposed to alter and change your situation. And so what these Old Testament patriarchs did is they stood by. And, and a good example would be a junkyard dog or a bulldog. By the way, our school is the Faith Prep Bulldogs. Do you know why we're called the Bulldogs? Because Bulldogs have a snout that is slanted this way. Right? You ever notice, or actually it's that way. You know why they have a snout that's slanted this, uh, that's slanted this way? Is because they can hold on to something and breathe at the same time. So they'll never let go of what they are holding on to. And actually when the Bible says now faith is the substance of things hoped for, it literally means holding on to the word of God no matter what. No matter what tries to steal the word of God from your heart, from your mind, from your situation. You hold on to that thing and you keep breathing because you know ultimately God's promise is going to come to pass because he watches over his word waiting to perform it in our lives, right? 
So verse one, this is what faith is. Verse two, this is what faith does. Faith gives us testimonies. It brings us through tests. It changes the circumstances. Verse three, skip it for just a minute and then go to verse number four. By faith, we understand, or by faith, so-and-so did this, and by faith, so-and-so did that, and by faith, verse number four on, it's all of the people who did these things by faith, and so we learn about Abel, and Enoch, and, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses, and Gideon, and Samson, not to mention David, and Esther, and Ruth, and Rahab, and so many more. So from verse 4 on to the end of the chapter, we find out about all of the testimonies that these people who obtained good reports from the Lord by faith accomplished. But then there's this one little verse, verse number 3, that kind of seems strange in the context. The context is saying this is what faith is. Second part of the verse is saying this is what faith does. And then from verse 4 on, we find out all of the testimonies. But verse number 3 says this, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And when we read that, we read that as if the rest of the context in the chapter is not there. And we think this verse is simply an, uh, a, a shout out to God speaking the world into existence. Now, how many of you know God did speak the world into existence? That's a fact, right? God, in creation, and God said, blah, 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 and it was so. And God said, blah, 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 and it was so. And God said, blah, 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 and it was so. So indeed, God did, by his word, speak the world into existence. And by the way, if you are like your heavenly father, your words are a creative force, right? But this verse is not talking about God creating the worlds. Matter of fact, look at it carefully. Pastor, how do you know that? Well, there are three Greek words that are used in translated worlds in the Bible. The first Greek word is the Greek word geise, G-A-Y-S-E. And it means, geise means, uh, uh, the, the, the earth, the world that, that we see, geise. The second one is the word cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S, and it means universe. Now, God did create the earth, geise, and the cosmos, universe. But this, Word that is used here, worlds, is neither geise nor cosmos. It is the third Greek word that can be translated worlds, and it is the word ionos, A-I-O-N-O-S. And it means periods of time in man's history. And so when you look at that, this verse is telling us how through faith, standing by God's word, no matter what the obstacles they encountered were, these particular Bible greats affected the periods of history that they lived through. And notice what it says. It says they framed. Notice they, they framed the worlds by the word of God. They, they got a word from God and they saw obstacles all around them. But they held on to that word of God. 
like, like a bulldog would hold on to a bone and keep breathing. They had, and everything would try to steal that word from them. But they held on and they held on and they held on. And the word of God changed their circumstances and they shaped or they changed the history of the world by holding on. How many of you know if you will hold on to a word from God for your life, you will change your circumstances? They framed despite what their future looked like. They framed it to come into alignment with the word of God. What was Noah's obstacle? He had never seen it rain. Never rained before. That was his obstacle. Abraham's obstacle. He was 100 years old. Esther's obstacle. She would be put to death if she went to go see the king. Rahab's obstacle. She was a prostitute. Elijah's obstacle. He suffered from depression and was outnumbered by the prophets of Baal. Joshua's obstacle. There were huge walls in front of him. Moses' obstacle. He had a Red Sea in front of him and he had an Egyptian army behind him. David's obstacle. There was a giant in front of him and he was just a shepherd boy. Mary's obstacle. She was a virgin. Joseph's obstacle, he was in prison. Ruth's obstacle, she was a poor widow woman who had nothing. Peter's obstacle, he denied Christ. Paul's obstacle, he was a murderer. But despite all of the obstacles, they got a word from God and they held on to that word from God and they changed their future from a word from God. You have to pre-frame your future. Pre-frame it. Hold on to it no matter what is happening in your life. Stand by it. Guard it. Keep it in your heart. Keep it in front of your eyes. Understand God is watching over his word, waiting to perform it. If your obstacle is being broke, pre-imagine yourself blessed coming and going. If your obstacle is depressed, pre-imagine yourself full of joy. If your obstacle is sickness, pre-imagine yourself healed and whole. If your obstacle is a bad marriage, pre-imagine yourself in a flourishing flourishing marriage. If your obstacle is being discouraged because it's taken too long for your dream to come to pass, pre-imagine yourself fulfilling your destiny. Whatever your obstacle is, you need to pre-imagine, which is how you pre frame your future so your future comes into alignment with the promises of God. Pre-frame your future. Imagination is powerful. If you see it, it's been said, you'll be it. If you believe it, you'll conceive it. A man by the name of Dr. Joseph Dispenza good Italian guy, also an accomplished psychologist. He said this, it's time to add imagination to the mix. The brain does not differentiate between what it sees and what it imagines. The brain does not differentiate between what it sees and what it imagines. You win the battle of the mind, not by just post-imagining or looking at your past through the lens of providence, but by Pre, pre-imagining or refra- or, or pre-framing your future. It's been said that all things are created twice. First in the imagination and then in reality. It's true. God thought us, then he created us. People ask this question all the time in the great, you know, uh, abortion debate, right? People ask, when does, when does life begin? It, it, it doesn't begin at birth. It doesn't begin at conception. It begins in the mind of God first. That's where it begins. As soon as God has a thought, it's a, it's a creative thing. Because God thinks everything is created twice. Once in the mind and, and then in the natural. That's how he created us. Our thoughts, our imaginations become our realities because they motivate our actions. 
Our imaginations are like transporters. They take what they see in the unseen realm and they motivate actions that cause them to materialize in the seen realm. I love the story of Walt Disney, right? Disney is not what Walt imagined it to be right now. Just, just, just throwing that out there. Okay. But, but he died before the grand opening of Walt Disney World. And so Mrs. Disney was asked to take the, you know, platform and the, the host of ceremonies. They, they said, Mrs. Disney, we just wish Walt was here to have seen this. She said he did. How so? In his imagination. Because imagination is a transporter. In order to, to see something, you first have to imagine it. So pre-imagine your future to come into a line with God, with what God says. Imagination is a transporter of the future God has for you. It allows you to see somewhat on God's grand scales further than your eyes can look. Your imagination allows you to see beyond just physical sight. You can never grasp hold of what God has for you just by what you can physically see. That's why the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Because sight limits your ability to see what God has. Imagination allows you to take a peek. If you want to just peek at what God has, you need your imagination because God is too big. God is too grand. His plans are too amazing for you to be able to comprehend them with your eyes. And so God gives us peaks with our imagination. Matter of fact, did you know that imagination is part of the end time outpouring of the Holy Spirit? It's exactly what the scripture says. Acts chapter 2 verse number 17. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Watch this. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. What is it? What's a vision and a dream? It's God getting into our imagination so that he can communicate with us on a level that is somewhat on his scale. He bypasses our physical limitations and he begins to talk to us in the language of faith. This is so good. Imagination is the language of faith. It is what enables you to see so big that you have to stop imagining because your mind will blow. you be like, oh, 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 see that. Right? Imagination. Pre-framing your future is pre-imagining your future. It's seeing yourself walking in and experiencing what God has for you. And I want to give you a couple of ways that you can pre-frame your future. Number one, if you're going to pre-frame your, your future, you need to prophesy your story. Gaylord Perry, anybody know who he is? He was a pitcher, a pitcher back in the day, pitched for the Yankees and other teams. He was a Hall of Famer, and, and he was not a great pitcher, not so good of a, of a hitter. In 1964, his manager made an offhand comment. He said, mark my words, a man will land on the moon before Perry hits a home run. In one of the craziest coincidences in sports history, Perry hit his first home run of his 22-year career on July 20th, 1969, just minutes after the Apollo 2 lunar module landed on the moon. Isn't that amazing? Why? Self-fulfilling prophecies aren't always as dramatic. They aren't always as spectacular. But for better or for worse, the stories that we forecast over our lives become self-fulfilling prophecies. I read a story about a sailboat in the America's Cup known as the Australian Two. 
And prior to the Australian Two's victory in 1983, a prior sailboat, obviously had many crews, won the cup 132 consecutive times. That is the longest winning streak. That's years, by the way. 132 consecutive years. That is the longest winning streak in sports history. When the Australia 2 crew won the cup, it was awarded the Athlete of the Year by ABC's Wide World of Sports. You all remember Wide World of Sports? Right? I don't know how you give it to a boat, but I gave it to a boat. Here's my question. How do you imagine any outcome other than defeat when you're facing another sailboat that has won 132 years in a row? See, here's what happens to us, is that if we don't, this is why we started with post-imagining, gaining control over our past, because if we don't put our past in perspective, our past begins to dictate our future, and 132 years of losses begin to predict a future of loss. And so what do you do to reverse the future that is not how you wanted it to be? How do you imagine a different future? Well, Mike Fletcher, the Australian skipper, made a recording of the Australian team winning the race several years before they won in 1983. The recording included the sound of the sailboat cutting through the water. And a copy of the recording was given to each member of the crew, and they were instructed to listen to it twice a day, and they did this every day for three years. Before even setting sail in 1983, they had won the race in their mind 2,190 times. Before they ever won the race, they won it 2,190 times because they listened to that recording over and over and over and over and over again. They pre-framed their future by prophesying their story. Come on, somebody. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You need to get the Word of God on a loop in your life. And if you are so down because of your past, you need to begin to play the recording over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you see in your mind what God has promised in your life. This is not psychological mumbo-jumbo. These are biblical principles practiced by the heroes of our faith that enabled them to pre-frame their future. In Abraham's case, God changed his and his wife's name. He said, no, no, I gave you a promise. You have to change your names now. This was, this was amazing about God, right? By the way, sometimes you need to change your name. If you're sick, your new name is healed. Tell everybody in your family, whenever you refer to me, don't call me Frank no more. Just say healed. Just, just call me that. If you're broke, your new name is prosperous. Every time you call out to me, just say prosperous, 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 prosperous. Come on, everybody gives each other names and stuff like that. You need to give your name, yourself a church name rather than a street name. Healed, prosperous, overcomer. Whatever your situation is, until you get it in your mind, call yourself something different. He called him Abraham because it meant father of many nations. He called her Sarah. It meant princess or queen. And every time Abraham called Sarah princess, it increased his chances of becoming the father of many nations. That just went over some people's head right there. That was great marital advice right there. I just, I just broke it down for you in the simplest form that I could. What was happening? They were prophesying their future prophesying their story. In David's case, he got before Saul, right? Going out to fight Goliath. 
Saul says, oh, no, no, you, you can't win this. David, here's what he said. He said, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and a lion and a bear came out, took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it, I struck it. By the way, part of your future success is you need to go after it. That was good. That was just free. That wasn't even in the notes. That was Holy Ghost moment right there. Okay? You need to go. Some of you, some of you are waiting for stuff to change. Here's, here's God's word. Go after it. God, God blesses what you set your hand to, not what you sit on your butt with. I like that. That's a tweetable right there. God blesses what you set your hand to, not what you sit on your butt with. So I went after it, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beer. I struck it and killed it. Your servant, here's what he's saying. He's going out to fight. He hasn't even fought Goliath yet. He said, your servant killed both the lion and the bear. And this, and I love David. David just throws some smack talk in there. I love it. And this uncircumcised I mean, that's some serious smack talking right there. I mean, you're going to call somebody, you uncircumcised. That's some smack talk right there. We'll be as one of them. See, he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of, what was he doing? He was pre-framing his future by prophesying his story. Then he gets before Goliath, right? The obstacles. That are in the way. The stuff that, that, that tries to steal the word of God sometimes comes in giant form, doesn't it? And he, and, and Goliath is, is talking all sorts of smack and, and, and by the way, whenever the, you don't talk back to your spouse. You don't talk back to your teachers. You don't talk back to your parents. You don't talk back to authority, but you know who you talk back to? The devil every single time. Never let the devil have the last word. If the devil says something and you don't talk back, that's what usually sticks in your life. So you got to talk back with equal smack. Your smack is scripture. Right? And so then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with some sword and a spear and a javelin, thinking you all bad and tough. He said, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down. And watch this. And I'm going to take your head from you. Come on, somebody. That is how you talk to the devil. That is how you prophesy your story and change your future. You've got to speak it over your life. Prophesying your future impacts your performance. It has a profound effect on your performance. Matter of fact, more than 100 years ago, there was a Br- British psychologist named J.A. Hatfield. He did a fascinating study on the power of suggestion. And he tested the effect of suggestion on physical grip strength using what is known as a dynamometer. And the participants first gripped the dynamometer with all their strength and with any, without any suggestion at all. And the average grip strength was 101 pounds of pressure. And then before they gripped again, he told them all, oh, you are so weak. You're, you're, you, 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 you can't even squeeze that thing just one inch. I, I know you, y'all are the softest, weakest, people I've ever seen. And then he measured the grip strength. And the grip strength decreased to 29 pounds. Just with the power of suggestion. And then he did one more test. He said, y'all are some of the strongest people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, look at y'all. Y'all got them 
crazy forearms. You got them Popeye forearms. I mean, when you, when you squeeze that thing, you might break that thing, right? And amazingly, their grip strength went up to 142 pounds. What happened? When you prophesy your future, you affect your performance. What you declare over your life is profoundly powerful. Remember, your brain does not know the difference between what it sees and what it imagines. And so when you suggest success, to your brain, you activate success in your life. This is why it is so important. The way you talk over you, the way you talk over your kids, the way you talk over your marriage, the way you talk over your church, the way you talk over your finances, the way you talk over your health, the way you talk over your relationships. You've, if, if you talk right, it will increase your performance in those things. Second way that you preframe your future. Number two, you pre-decide your choices. We could say faith is having such confidence that God will do what he's promised that you begin to imagine yourself experiencing the promise. You begin to see yourself just like God promised before it actually happened. I remember before we moved into this building, like the day of the grand opening was terrific for a lot of people. It was like deflating a little bit for me. Because I had been in the place and walked through it so many times in my mind. Over and over and over and over again. Hundreds of times before we actually opened, right? And so when you begin to imagine, you see yourself. So what zaps our ability to imagine? Listen to me carefully. We can't pre-imagine the promised future that God has for us. Because most people are mentally out of breath. Most people are mentally out of breath. You say, what, what does that mean, Pastor? Sociology, Elsie Bolding, she once diagnosed modern society with temporal exhaustion. She said, if one is mentally out of breath all the time from dealing with the present, there is no energy left for imagining the future. So many people are getting busybodies. Get involved in all sorts of things that cause all sorts of energy, being troubled about stuff that shouldn't even matter. And when you do that, what you are doing is you are zapping your energy. You are becoming mentally exhausted about things so you cannot pre-imagine the future that God has for you. And so what happens is you suffer from decision fatigue. Decision fatigue. When you are so focused on every insignificant decision that you don't have any time left for the important decisions and imagining your future. There was a famous study done by the National Academy of Sciences of 1,112 parole hearings by an Israel parole board over a 10-month period of all the prisoners. They found that 70% of the prisoners that received parole got parole first thing in the morning. They found that that as the day went by and the longer the day went, the chances of being granted parole became slim and none. People who were in the second half of the day, they only 10% of them were granted parole. And if the judge took a break for lunch and came back, those people got lucky too because getting parole went back to morning t- uh, 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 types of uh, being granted, I guess you could say. What happens, by the way, if you ever go for parole, go in the morning. Decision fatigue. 
you, you get to a point. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You get to a point where you, you can't make another decision. Right? You, you get to, psychologists call it being flooded. And by the way, men get flooded quicker than women. Yep. Men get flooded quicker. So what happens is, let me give you some more marital advice, right? A man comes home from work, and he's had a really hard day, right? And he walks in the door, and, and, and his wife is waiting there and says, I don't want to tell you this, and can you do this, and can you do that, and honey, it's so good to see you, and we need, we need to get this done, and we need to get that done, and we need to get that done. And what does the big guy do? Would you stop her? And gets all, all upset. I know I, I didn't just go into anybody's home right there. Right? Flooded. Mentally flooded. Decision fatigue. So, so you have to work on that. So what you do, this is free marital advice, is you greet them warmly if you're home first, right? Or if you're home before they are, you greet them warmly, whichever way it works. You let them go change. You let them get relaxed. You let them eat dinner. <sighs> Time to breathe. Break. And you go back to pre-morning parole hearing mind. Decision fatigue. So how do we overcome decision fatigue so that we are not mentally out of breath and, and able to process the present and envision the future? We, we pre-decide. Steve Jobs, everybody thought he was funny, like rich guy, wears the same clothes every day. It wasn't actually the same clothes. It was the same color jeans, but different jeans, and the same color turtleneck, but different turtleneck, and the same color sneakers, but different sneakers. But it was all the same because every morning when he got up, he didn't want to be bothered with what do I need to wear because it was an insignificant decision. Because if it's what do I wear or how do I make a billion bucks, I want to put my energy on the billion bucks. I don't really care what I wear. So same thing every day. This looks good on me. All black. I love all black. Right? With the white sneakers. I thought about doing this a lot. This would be kind of cool, right? Because if you're fat, anybody fat? <laughs> anybody struggle with fat, right? When you struggle with fat, it's, it's, it can sometimes be like a chore. You're like, you're mentally exhausted leaving the closet. You're like, oh, I changed a hundred times, right? So I thought about this a million times. Just find an outfit that works good on fat and wear it, buy like a hundred of them and just wear it every single day. Not mentally exhausted anymore, right? Steve Jobs pre-decided. Let me give you some simple pre-decisions that will help you. Number one, I will obey God no matter how difficult the situation is. Pre-decide. For it, confronts it, you're confronted with it, pre-decide. I will attend church every single weekend. Pre-decide. So this way, what happens? Well, how am I going to fit this in and that in? And how am I going to? No, I go to church. I fit everything else in. Easy. Makes, makes life so much simpler to do that. Every dollar that comes into my life, I'll give God a dime. I don't even have to think about it, right? Here comes that big million dollar check. Bam, 100,000 going right to God. Just make the decision, right? I'll stay faithful to God. I'll treat my body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell the truth even when it's hard. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it no matter how difficult it is. When trials come my way, I will count it all joy. I will count my blessings instead of my troubles. I'll honor my spouse. I'll raise my children in the ways of the Lord. I'll put God first in all things. Pre-decide. Make the decision before you have to make the decision. Where do we see this in the Bible? We see it in the life of Joseph. Joseph made a pre-decision to not sleep with Potiphar's wife. Check out what the Bible says about this. 
Watch this. It says, um, Frank was handsome and well, and a well-built young man. Oh, oh, Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. Makes sense to me, except maybe not in this culture. Anyway, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. Watch this. But he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. Did you notice that last part? He kept out of her way. What was he doing? Predeciding. He was predeciding. I'm not putting myself in temptation, right? It's like the people, you know, God delivered them from alcohol. And like, they think they could just go hang out at bars. Oh, it's not going to affect me. Dummy. Right? What, what, what do you have to do? You have to pre-decide not to cooperate with the enemy. And I love it. Not only did he pre-decide, but notice how he spoke of the sin. He called it wicked and evil and disloyal and against God and against his... Can we start calling sin what it is instead of renaming it? It is the devil's ploy so that we find it easier to do it. Call it what it is. It's not a different choice. It's not a culturally acceptable, well, you know, I was listening to a preacher last night. Just flipping through Instagram. This preacher once preached the gospel. Now he's talking about how, you know, the gospel of Christianity where people are, you know, uh, call sin, sin, and this, that, and this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's becoming outdated. Because we are not, we are, we not, we are not progressing in our consciousness. I want to reach to and say, stop. Right? Call it what it is. Pre-decide. Now what happens? When Joseph pre-decided, right? One day he was ready for it. He, he wasn't as, uh, susceptible because he was ready. Verse number 11 of chapter 39. One day, however, no one else was around. By the way, we teach this all the time. Never think you're big enough powerful enough to put yourself in a compromising situation and not fall. So we teach people this all the time. We'll be alone with somebody who's the opposite sex. Oh yeah, but you know, we pray in the Holy Ghost. Never. Why? Because that's the devil's playground. This is what, so one day, however, no one else was around. When she went in to do her work, when he went in to do his work, she came and she grabbed him by the cloak. How many of you know the devil is aggressive? Devil's reaching through the TV and grabbing some of y'all right now. He's reaching through the educational system and grabbing some of y'all right now. He's reaching through your friends and grabbing some of y'all right now. So one day, he, she came, she grabbed him by the coat, demanding, come and sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran from the house. Why? He had pre-decided. 
Don't wait until you have to make the decision to make the decision. Because if you wait till you have to make the decision to make the decision, you will fall to the decision. But if you pre-decide the decision and you pre-decide that over and over and over, you pre-imagine your future as running from sin. You pre-imagine your future as pleasing God. You pre-imagine your future as standing and doing what is right before God. When the opportunity comes, you will run. Pre-decide. Third thing and last thing I want to share with you, and I know I'm going a little bit long, but number three, to preframe your future, you need to plant your seed. I, I, I read about this, this crazy scientist who decided that he was going to go and seed the clouds, and, and he was going to make it snow. And he, so he took up carbon dioxide into a plane, big load of carbon dioxide. He released it when he was up in the clouds, and onlookers said that the cloud exploded, and they could see snowfall from 40 miles away. Because he, he seeded the clouds. Seeding the clouds is similar to planting seeds, which spiritually seeking is taking proactive measures today that will produce desired outcomes tomorrow. Scripture teaches us that what we sow today, we see tomorrow. Let me say it again. Scripture teaches us that what we sow today, we will see tomorrow. A bright future is not magic. A bright future is comprised of the things that we talked about, but also sowing seeds today that will produce desired outcomes tomorrow. Ecclesiastes 11.1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. In other words, what I do today is going to impact my tomorrow. Well, how do I know what seeds to sow today? You reverse engineer the process. What is reverse engineering? It's beginning with the end in mind. That's what God does, right? That's why conception doesn't happen at birth. Because that would be the opposite of reverse engineering. Reverse engineering is start with the outcome, that's birth, and back up. So God thinks, hmm, what do I want this person to do? What do I want them to look like? What talents do I want them to have? Reverse engineering, what does he do? He begins to sow all that into that person. Then all that grows when it's in the womb, and then poop, there's the outcome. Poop, there it is. Right, that was funny right there. Reverse engineer. Noah started with making it through a worldwide flood. That was the promise. Then he backed up, and you know what he did? He built an ark. According to rabbinical tradition, Noah planted trees when he got the promise so that they would grow, so you have lots of planks to build the ark. Remember, they lived to like a 1,000 in those days, right? I don't know what that looked like, but I don't know. Begin with the end of mind. Let me give you a few seeds that everybody can sow today that you'll see tomorrow so you can have God's future tomorrow. Number one, humility. That's the seed you need for God's favor. How many of you know you cannot do anything or accomplish anything without God's favor? It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Unless God breathe on it, unless God makes it happen, it cannot come to pass if it's the dream that God has for you. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God's favor is what establishes it. How do you get God's favor? Isaiah 66 verse 2. These are the ones that I look on with favor. Those who are humble and have a contrite spirit. Give me some time to teach on humility some other time, but it's not what we think it is. Because you have a lot of people who are outwardly humble but inwardly arrogant. Oh, I'm really not that good at that. First of all, it's a lie if you are. Right? Like if somebody comes to me and goes, Pastor, that was a great message. You're such a wonderful preacher. No, I'm really not that good. First of all, that would be a lie. It's funny right there, right? 
That's false humility, right? True humility is when you understand that it's God who's given you the gift and that you understand. Do you know how many times, even before I walk out here, I say, God, unless you show up, unless you go with me, God, I can't do this. God, I need you. I need you to breathe. I need you to talk. I need you to speak to my mind, touch my heart, communicate through my lips. True humility is something that is inward more than it is a big show outwardly, but it's the seed you sow today. For God's favor tomorrow. Generosity, the seed you need for double blessing. Generosity is the seed you need for double blessing. You'll never be able to accomplish the future God has for you without finances. God's dream for you is always bigger than the finances you possess. If you can do it on what you have, you're not flowing with God. You're, you're not getting the next phase of the dream. Because you never just arrive and God goes, okay, good enough. God always keeps adding to it, right? And so in order for you to get finances in your future, you need to be generous today. Given it will be given back to you. How? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Shall men give onto your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured to you again. If you want finances in your future, you need to be generous today. Obedience, third seed. It's the seed you need for overflow. Obedience today sets you over up for overflow tomorrow. What was Joseph obedient? He said, I'm going to obey even when it's hard. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, even when to do the opposite of what God wants me to do would be easy. And that obedience, what it do? It overflowed into his life. Didn't look like it was working. How many of you know sometimes obedience doesn't look like it's working? Right? Give you a practical example. You diet all week. You get on the scale. It moves point two. You go, oh, it's not working. Yes, it is. Stay faithful to it. Obedience is the seed you sow today for overflow in the future. Then you do it another week and you get, oh, I lost three pounds as we praise God, right? That's what happens with obedience. It has a cumulative effect. It creates overflow in the future. Third, fourth, and final seed, kindness. Kindness today is the seed for reciprocity tomorrow. I want to close with this story. This old couple goes to a hotel and it's raining outside. It's a bad storm. They go up to the clerk and they say to the clerk, listen, we need a room. And the clerk looks down and he said, I'm so, so sorry, but we're all booked up. And the old couple, he saw them and he said, he said, but I can't let a nice old couple like you go out into the storm. So if you would, I'll give you my room. I live here. It's not a suite or anything like that, but it'll make you comfortable. If you'll have it, you can stay there. Don't worry about me. I'll make it through the night just fine. Next day. Old couple gets up, they go to pay the bill, they look at the man, they say to the man, you know what, it's hard to find people who are kind and back it up with actions. He says, you know what, you're just the type of person that I would love to build a hotel for. And off the old couple went. Two years go by, the man gets a letter in the mail, recounting the story from the old couple with a one-way ticket to New York City. Man gets on the plane, comes, meets the old couple. Old couple takes him to Park Avenue in New York City, Stands before the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and says, this is the hotel that I have built for you. That one active man's name, George C. Bolt. Obviously, the older couple's name, William Waldorf Astor. That one seed of kindness changed his future forever. 
kindness today is the seed you need for reciprocity tomorrow. And if you are a child of God, here's the good thing about your kindness today. God promises in Ephesians 6, number 8, whatever good thing you do for anyone, God will do the same thing for you. God will repay it for you. When you are a child of God and you sow the seed of kindness today, God opens up doors for you tomorrow. All of a sudden, stuff starts happening in your future, and you're like, I don't understand why that happened, because you sowed seeds for it before. There's seeds of open doors. There's seeds for good breaks. There's seeds of things happening for you that you could have never made happen for yourself before. What do you need to do? You need to plant your seeds today in order to see the future that God has for you tomorrow. When do you need to plant? Today. Our opening text says it like this. Now faith is. When is faith? Now. Problem with people is they're always waiting for the optimal circumstances. Right? Well, I'll do that when, and I'll do this when, and I'll be happy when, and I'll take care of that when, and I'll act like this then, and my attitude will change then, and when and when and when. And there's a scripture that says that if you regard the wind, you won't sow. If you regard the rain, you won't plant. And the scriptures basically tell us if you wait for the perfect situation, what happens is you'll never put your seed in the ground today that you want to see tomorrow. And so what does God do? God comes along and he says, now faith is. He said, start today. Start with what you have. Do what you can today. You can smile at somebody today. You can be kind to somebody. And by the way, anytime somebody's nasty to you, that's your seed opportunity. That is your, matter of fact, quick seed opportunity. Because when you sow kindness, when somebody's kind, that's nice. It'll produce but not as quick as when you sow kindness in somebody's me. It's more fertilizer. When you do what God says in the face of the enemy doing things in your life, what the enemy does becomes fertilizer because what the enemy does is, is a bunch of manure. And what does manure do to seed? It fertilizes it. So what is the best place to sow your seed. The best times to sow your seed is not when everything is right. It's not when everything is proper. It's not when everything is going good. It's just the opposite. It's in the middle of all the manure. If you'll sow, oh, this is so, if you'll sow your seed in the middle of all the manure, guess what happens? You see a harvest coming back so quick in your life. If you want to change your future, sow your seed now. Would you stand to your feet? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we bless you today. We thank you so much for your goodness. The greatest seed that you could sow now is the seed to give your life to Jesus Christ. What it does is it affects your present, your future on the earth, but most of all, your eternal future. The message of the gospel is clear. Without Christ, like we sung about at the beginning, we were sinners sentenced to hell. But because of his mercy, we're saints on our way to heaven. But in order to be on your way to heaven, you have to ask forgiveness for your sin. You have to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. You have to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. 
And I choose to put my faith in Jesus as my Savior and receive him as my Lord. Not just the person who grants me eternal life, but the person whose standard I follow for the rest of my life. If you're here today and you're not right with God, if you're watching at home, you're not right with God. If you're at one of our locations, not right with God. And today you want to be made right with God. But no one looking around, if that's you, just put your hands up and say, Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. Come on, hold them up if that's you. Wherever you are. At home. Right there on your couch. In front of your family. Thinking you're crazy. What you hold your hands up for? Hold them up to the Lord. Let's pray right now. Everybody praying this prayer together. Say it out loud with me. Heavenly Father. Today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. If you're watching, wherever you're watching from, you prayed that prayer for the first time, you want to give your life to Jesus, there's a little hand in front of you. Reach out and tap it or write the word Jesus in the chat and we will reach out to you.